Good morning. How's everyone today? Praise the Lord. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Now last week we covered one verse. Verse 11. But, you know, the longer that I'm pastoring and teaching, the more inclined I am just to take my time, not try to cover more than we really can, and really get into the meat of the Scriptures. Because when you have a book that is literally written by the Creator of all things, there's a lot of depth there, wouldn't you agree? In fact, I guess that was a couple of weeks ago, because last week I shared with you uh, from Hebrews chapter 10, the week before that I was in Arizona, so it's actually been about three weeks since we've been in First Peter, I guess. So, But we're going to pick it up in verses 12 and 13, and today we're going to cover two verses. So we're making progress. Let's read those two verses together, First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, this is one of those passages, and we will also look in conjunction with this passage in James chapter 1. We, we joked around. When we used to be down on... Um, Led, uh, not led, actually Hazeldine, right across from Melanie Stadium many years ago. I think we were doing a study. I forget the book, but I'm thinking it was James. And we were joking around about how, you know, churches will put banners and signs out, come worship with us, come celebrate, this and that and the other thing. And we joked about the fact that to, given the nature of the teaching and the studies that we were in, we should put out a banner that says, come suffer with us at Calvary Chapel East. We thought, that might not draw too many people. And yet when you look at much of what the New Testament talks about, the teachings of Christ, the teachings of the apostles, the apostles' doctrine, I mean, there is a lot of discussion about this whole issue of suffering for Christ. It's probably not a real popular topic, but it's very real, and it's an important part of the Scriptures. And I've been mulling over in my mind again lately the... Um, the original vision for our church. And people sometimes say, what's your vision? What's your, you know, mission statement or whatever? You know, and we live in this day and age where everybody's got to have a mission statement. And you know what? My mission statement's right here. This is it. And uh, I was thinking too back, you know, in the early days of my walk with the Lord as a young adult and just the simplicity, when I, when I found Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, Pastor Chuck Smith, I'd grown up in denominational churches First the Foursquare Church, then the Baptist Church later on. And one of the things that I saw that was so distinctive about Pastor Chuck and Calvary Chapel versus the other churches that I attended, my experience growing up was that most pastors, preachers, teachers would read one or two scriptures and then tell stories. And when I went to Costa Mesa, they actually taught through the Bible. It wasn't just a bunch of storytelling. You know what I mean? And there's some really good storytellers out there. But I don't know of a better storyteller than God, the one who wrote this book. And the simplicity of the worship and how the whole philosophy of ministry of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was that the whole congregation was the choir. 
First church I'd ever been to in my life that didn't have a choir because the congregation's the choir. And the songs were simple and easy to follow and easy to memorize and, and all that sort of thing. There weren't a lot of hang-ups and issues about, you know, oh, uh, this committee and that committee and this group and that group and who's in charge of this and who's in charge of that. Nobody really cared. We just came to worship God and study the Word. And, you know, the church is supposed to be more than just an organization or an institution. It's supposed to be a living, breathing organism light with life. But what happens is the more the life begins to drain away from a church, the more it turns from an organism to an organization. And again, like I've said many times, there are many people who um, ha- take issue with the, quote, organized church. Therefore, this is the perfect church for you. Because we are disorganized. And not, I'm not flaunting that. I'm, I'm kind of overstating it, really. We're not that disorganized, but we're not really that organized either. But that's been another hallmark of Calvary Chapels. It's funny, we joke around about it. You can't get a hold of anybody, and you know nobody knows what's going on. But the good news is, God knows what's going on. So as I was thinking back, you know, we had our 20... We didn't make a big deal out of it, but January last month, January 8th was our 29th anniversary for this church. And we're now uh, one month into our 30th year. I was only nine years old when we started this church. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? Greg Laurie was like uh, 18 when he started his church. I knew Greg back in those days. We're the same age. So I beat him out starting at nine years of age. But basically, I could boil down our vision for this church when we began, and it's still, as far as I'm concerned, our vision today. One was that, uh, that church would be enjoyable. Not a drudgery, you know, well, I guess I gotta go to church today. And part of that is having exuberant, heartfelt, sincere praise and worship, which I think we've, we've done fairly well with over the years. Nikki's doing a great job. Better all the time. And the rest of the team. I wanna give everybody credit here. Um, but, and you might say, well, how in the world do you expect us to enjoy it with the kind of messages that you preach? <laughs> well, I think, again, there's a place for all of this in the church. And when it comes to the teaching of the Word, that's supposed to be a training and an equipping time and a challenging time. The Bible says, provoke one another to love and good works. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So, yeah, the teaching may be the more challenging part, although we try to integrate some humor, whether it be intentional or unintentional. But the enjoyment, the fun of being together as a family, fellowshipping, being a family, and, that's, and that maybe they go hand in hand. I kind of identified them separately in my own mind that we wanted the church to be a family, and I've had people comment on that. It's encouraging when through the years we hear people say, well, this, this is about the most loving church I've ever been to. Now, some people say the opposite. 
But part of that is it depends on what attitude you come in here with. If you come in here looking for a fight, you'll probably get one. And that's not just, that's not just true here. That's true anywhere. That's in your neighborhood, in your place of work, in your school. If you go in with a bad attitude, you're going to reap the results of that. If you're coming in already offended and looking for a reason to get offended again, I can almost guarantee you, you will. Right? But if you truly come in looking for family, looking for fellowship, looking for relationship, you will find it here. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the most forgiving, merciful churches you will ever encounter. One of the least judgmental churches you will find anywhere. And that's because of you guys. Your heart attitude. And your responsiveness to the Spirit of God and the truth of His Word and the sincere, heartfelt worship. So being a family, not just being a crowd, and that really that's a lot of what church seems to be about today in many places, to, be, to see how big of a crowd you can gather, an audience, uh, spectators, and our goal was always just the opposite. We did not want a church filled with spectators, with an audience, with a crowd. We wanted to be a family because I think that's what the Bible wants us to be. In fact, one of the things that the church is called in the Scriptures is the family of God, the household of faith, right? That doesn't sound like an organization to me. That sounds like an organism. What do you think? And then the other part of our vision was to make disciples. And that's the Great Commission that Christ gave to the apostles in Matthew chapter 28. Go forth and make disciples of all nations. And so, as I've said for many years, Christians are born. Jesus said you must be born again. How does somebody become a Christian? How do they enter into the kingdom of God? They are born again by the Spirit of God. Christians are born, disciples are made. And how did Jesus tell the apostles to do that? By teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. So Jesus said, okay, I've taught you guys for three years. Now I want you to go out and teach others. I want you to make disciples. Disciples are made by consistent, ongoing instruction in the Word of God. The Word of God has the power to transform us, Romans chapter 12, by the renewing of our minds. And so that's been our vision from day one and continues to be. We are not probably necessarily recognized in the community as Calvary Chapel East. Oh yeah, that's a pro-life church because we don't have a big organized pro-life group. But we are pro-life. We talk about it all the time. But it's not like that's our singular focus. Our focus is on the things I've just talked about. And out of that focus grow these other convictions like pro-life, anti-abortion, pro-biblical, heterosexual, monogamous relationships in a biblical marriage. Things, these are all values that we hold to because that's what the Scriptures teach. Does that make sense? Okay. That was all extra and for free. For free? Okay, let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We ask you to bless our study. Thank you for the, the dynamic, powerful, 
impact that your word has on our hearts and minds as we take the time to read it and to study it, both individually and together. God, we ask you to bless this study now in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. I want to start with the word beloved. Peter uses it twice in this book of 1 Peter. And it is the Greek word agapitos or agapitos. Does that sound familiar? What do you hear in there? It's one form of the Greek word agape. Unconditional love. He calls them beloved. Those whom I, Peter, love unconditionally. Why? Because Christ loved me unconditionally. 1 Peter 4.8, we read a couple of weeks ago, above all things, Peter says, have fervent agape for one another, for agape will cover a multitude of sins. Peter knew a lot about agape because he was a major recipient of agape, of God's unconditional love. He was a disciple, at least the only recorded disciple to whom Jesus made this statement, Get thee behind me, Satan. But at the same time, and he warned Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, that'll never happen. What happened? He denied him three times before the rooster crowed. And yet, Peter experienced the love of Christ, perhaps like few others have. When he, um, he sent a message through Mary Magdalene. Tell Peter and the other disciples to meet me in Galilee. Which name did he single out? Peter. Let Peter know specifically, I want him there. Was Jesus' way of letting Peter know, it's all good. You're forgiven. I love you. So Peter understood this unconditional love. And so as he approaches this difficult subject of impending persecution, notice the fiery trial which is to try you. It's coming. Peter saw it. He knew it. He's warning them, preparing them. And as he does that, he first expresses his deep love for his readers. He's telling them this out of love and concern and trying to prepare them for what lies ahead. So he says, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. And unfortunately, this is often the first reaction uh, by many Christians when they encounter trials in this life. We shouldn't think it's strange, but somehow we do. Why is this happening to me? None of us have ever said that, right? God, why didn't you protect me? Did I do something to deserve this? I thought my life would be perfect once I became a Christian. Some people do enter the Christian life thinking that now everything will be wonderful. Now, it is wonderful. You've been given the precious gift of eternal life. You've been forgiven of your sins. You've been given all the resources of God's kingdom, His Holy Spirit, joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost, but that doesn't mean that all the problems of this life disappear. And in fact, in many ways, they multiply because now, as believers, we become prime targets of the enemy. If you were the devil and you're not, even though someone may have called you the devil, I think someone may have called me the devil more than once. But if you were the devil and you were trying to strategize, who would be your prime targets? People who are lost 
in the world, confused, steeped, in, caught up in bondage of sin, would those be your prime targets? I would think you could make the case that they're already on your side, right? But who is the biggest threat to the devil and to his kingdom of darkness? The followers of Christ, right? They're the biggest threat. Because every time God uses one of his children, one of his people, to bring another one into his kingdom, the devil just lost another soul, right? So if you were the devil and you were strategizing, let's look at this from the military viewpoint, which the Bible does use that analogy quite often. Who would be your target? The biggest threat. You know, you've got this. We just rewatched that movie, Hacksaw Ridge. That's an amazing movie about a Christian young man who saved something like he was a conscientious objector wouldn't carry a weapon. This is a true story from World War II. How many of you have seen that, Hacksaw Ridge? A lot of you. It's a good movie. Anyway, if you remember in the movie where the Japanese had these bunkers and they're all enclosed in concrete and they've got their machine guns sticking out through the hole, that was the biggest threat. And so what do you do? Somebody bravely rushes up there and throws a bag bomb in there and blows the thing up because those men in that bunker are so well protected and they've got this rapid fire machine gun that they have the potential to inflict the most damage. You got to take them out. Well, from the devil's viewpoint, that's you and me. And so it's important that we recognize and understand that even though we are totally blessed in Christ, we've been given all good things by God. We have joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. We have the promise, the sure and certain promise of eternal life there are still going to be trials in this life. And so Peter says, don't think it's strange. John 16, 33, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Now this is interesting. First he says, I want you to have peace. He says, in the world you'll have tribulation. Really, Lord? That's supposed to give me peace? But here's the peaceful part. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So where does the peace come from? The fact that we know we're going to have trials? No, from the fact that we know Jesus has overcome the world and as long as our life is hidden in Christ, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, right? He is our hiding place. He is our rock. As long as we hang on to Him, then we can have peace in the midst of trials and tribulations because we know that He is in control And he will not allow anything to happen in the life of a believer unless he intends to use it for good. And since we aren't very good at handling blessings, take the United States as an example. Israel as another example. David, when he was on the run from Saul, what a powerful man of God. And he was, throughout his life, he was a man after God's own heart. But when did David get in trouble? When he was on the run from Saul? No. I'll tell you what, being on the run from Saul or the devil or whoever it might be really enhances your prayer life. Being in a a very dangerous, risky situation really enhances your prayer life. Multiple times when I've been in the midst of what would appear to be a really 
serious car crash or something, something weird's happening, you know, somebody's about to hit somebody, somebody's about to hit me, blah, 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 I'm about to hit somebody else. The first words out of my mouth are, Jesus! And he hears those kind of prayers. He knows what I mean when I say, Jesus, help! Right? Those things enhance our prayer life. No, David got into trouble when he conquered all of his enemies on every side. He had built his palace. He's in his 50s. You know, he's large and in charge. He, he decides, I'm not going to go out with the army this time. Joab, you take care of it. And that's when he spotted Bathsheba on the rooftop. People think, wow, if, if God would just really bless my socks off, I would be so spiritual. I'd be such a great Christian. No, historically, when God blesses people's socks off, they usually go down the tubes. Because we can't handle it. Israel couldn't handle it. The United States couldn't handle it. And you and I usually can't handle it. I'm not saying that we should seek to not be blessed. I'm just saying, you know, in Proverbs it says, don't give me so little that I bring shame upon your name by going out and stealing. But don't give me so much that I forget about you. That's my paraphrase from the book of Proverbs, around chapter 30, 31, right in there. Don't give me so little that I bring shame upon your name by going out and stealing. And don't give me so much that I forget about you. And that's what happens. God blessed Israel's socks off. They forgot about him. God blessed the United States of America. Largely, the United States of America has forgotten about him. But there's been a real push lately to bring him back into the picture, hasn't there? And I won't mention who's been doing that. But there is someone very high up in our government who's been invoking the name of God on a regular basis. And that's a blessing. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3, that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this for in fact we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know so Jesus warned his followers, in the world you'll have tribulation. Paul warned those that he had led to Christ and was pastoring and teaching and leading. And yet today, any pastor that would dare to get up and tell his congregation, you know, if you really want to follow Christ, there's going to be some suffering involved. That doesn't fly real well in 2018. But we still do it here. Because I follow Christ I follow Paul. I follow the Word of God. And it's really not fair to give people a false idea and a false sense of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. To paint this, I mean, as again, I said, there's many wonderful things about it. Nothing can compare to having the burden of sin lifted off of your heart. The lightness that you feel when you put those sins on Christ and He takes them from you. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like in the Chris, a Christmas carol where Marley comes in with all of his chains and weights that he's dragging. And uh, he tells Scrooge, these are the chains that I forged in life. That's a powerful uh, depiction of how sin affects us, that weight, that drag that it puts on us. And when we give Christ our heart and our lives, we receive his forgiveness. This heavy weight is lifted off. 
But again, to to teach people, to lead people to believe, hey, once you become a Christian, everything's perfect. Everything's wonderful. It's rosy. It's peaches and cream, which is kind of what the faith movement does. Joel Osteen, people like that. What's that book of his? Your Best Life Now? Man, if this is my best life now, forget it. My best life will be when I'm with Jesus forever. It's all this hypey baloney. All right, I've been hard on Joel lately. I'll back down. <laughs> Why is it that Christians should, should expect trials and persecution in this life? Why? The Scriptures obviously teach that. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter said it. He talks about the fiery trial, which is to try you. He doesn't say, it might. He says, okay, guys, get ready. You might endure some persecution. No, he says, it's going to happen. But why? As children of God, the king's kids, why? First of all, John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The first reason that Christians should expect trials and persecution in this life because a lot of people out there hate our Lord and Savior. It's a reality. But again, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. So this, of course, is predicated upon how much we look, act, and talk like Jesus. Right? If we don't bear any resemblance to Jesus, then they're probably not going to hate us. At least they're not going to hate us for the right reason. They might hate us for some other reason. Maybe the something that we've done wrong, and our attitude, our, but if we act like Jesus, look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, there are going to be those who hate us, the same ones who hate him. Second reason, and Peter uses the term here, fiery trial. The Greek word here is the one used for the purification of precious metals, like gold and silver. What do they do? They heat the gold and the silver up till it becomes liquid, the impurities come to the surface. They are skimmed off. You're left with a pure gold ingot or silver uh, ingot or brick or whatever. That's the word here in the Greek. So it's for purification. The reason God allows us to go through fiery trials is to purify us. It's only by going through trials and tribulations in this life that the true nature of our faith is revealed. 1 Peter 1.7, we covered way back in the beginning of this study of 1 Peter. It says that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that at the time. It's important to know that we are in possession of a genuine faith. There are many people out there in the world whether they be identifying as Christians or some other belief system that are not in possession of a genuine faith. Well, I would argue that anyone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is not in possession of a genuine faith. But even those who would come under that umbrella and identify themselves as believers, how many of you here today would want to go through life believing, not having a genuine faith but a false faith? Nobody. We want to know that we know that we know, right? And so Peter says we 
God allows us to go through these fiery trials that the genuineness of our faith, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's easy to claim Christ when things are going well, right? It's a whole other ball game when the fire falls. And I'm sure we all know people, all of us here today know people who once made a proclamation of faith in Jesus only to throw in the towel when the going got tough. Right? It's a sad thing. It breaks our hearts. But the only way we can know for sure is to go through these fiery trials. You see, that's one of the many flaws and problems with the so-called faith message. The name it and claim it, you know, message. The health and wealth, prosperity message. And it was the same misconception that the disciples were under when Christ came. Remember how he said it's, it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples said, Oy vey! They didn't really say oy vey. They might have said oy vey. It's not in the Bible. But they did say, Lord, then who can be saved? Why did they say that? Because they were under the misconception that favor with God automatically equated with earthly wealth and prosperity when the Bible teaches just the opposite. And so the faith movement teaches if you're, if you're going through trials and tribulations and difficulties, it's because you have a lack of faith. I would propose to you it takes more faith to go through the trials than to avoid them. And I believe I stand on solid biblical evidence with that. And so thirdly, James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, writes James, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. There it is again. That's the verse that always makes you mad when your friend quotes it to you. You're complaining. You're whining. You're moaning. I can't believe this. I can't believe I'm going through this. Why is God allowing this? And your friend says, Hey, now listen, remember, count it all joy. And that's when you want to lay hands on him in the name of the Lord. <laughs> but James says, That sounds crazy. Why would you want to count it all joy? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But all of us have such an abundance of patience already, we don't need that, right? I certainly don't. But let patience have its perfect work so that you may, may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking nothing. So God allows these trials and tribulations in our lives in order to build within us strength and endurance. God is on our side. He wants us to make it to the finish line. He wants us to hang in there, to hang tough, to be strong, to continue to be followers of Christ, disciples. And he knows, again, just like any other form of exercise, no pain, no gain, right? Whether it's working out with weights or running. Dave talking about running. I think, Dave, you're... I don't know. I, I'm a little concerned about this whole deal, but <laughs> pray for Dave. And I heard you went and played basketball with the girls the other day. Is that true? 
How are your knees? You better be careful. But again, no pain, no gain. God knows that the only way for us to build up the strength, the endurance that we need to finish the race that He has set before us is we have to endure difficulties. Because again, it's easy to claim Christ if everything's perfect in your life, which it's never really is the case for anyone. But again, there are those that would lead you to believe if you're really spiritual and you're really mature, or you have the appropriate amount of faith, then your life will be perfect. The perfect life comes after this life, not during this life, you see? And then he says, as though some strange thing happened to you. Wow, this is really weird. I'm, I'm a child of God and I'm going through difficulties? It's like going off to war and then being surprised when bullets start zipping past your face, past your head. What? They're shooting at me? I can't believe it. Well, you signed up, didn't you? Yes, you did. You signed up to be a soldier for Christ. You're a member of God's army now. There are no civilians in the body of Christ. No conscientious objectors. You've got to take up your cross and follow Him. All right, verse 13. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Sounds like what we just read in James chapter 1, doesn't it? Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. We are to rejoice because it is an honor to be so identified with Jesus that we are treated as he was and as he still is. See, it's all in your perspective, isn't it? You can feel sorry for yourself. You can say, woe is me. You can say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Or you can say, wow. This is rough, but it's nothing compared to what Jesus went through. What an honor to suffer for my Lord and Savior. But it takes a whole different mentality. That's not the way our natural mind works. That's the way the mind of Christ works. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, that I may know him, not just know about him, and again, there's a big difference. And I'm not sure that everyone who identifies as a Christian understands the difference between knowing about him and knowing him. True Christianity is not about religion. It's about relationship. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We're all on board with that, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Give me some of that. I want to be raised too. I want eternal life. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross, for rising from the dead on the third day. The power of His resurrection, that's what I'm all about. But notice what goes hand in hand. That I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. According to Paul, in order to truly know Christ and enter into deep relationship with Him, we must embrace the fellowship of His sufferings. And I would propose to you 
that that's probably the greatest of all fellowship. Again, we've used a military analogy. The closeness that develops between men and now perhaps women too in combat, but particularly men or camaraderie on the battlefield, in the trenches, in the foxhole, lives at stake. There's a camaraderie that develops there that really you can't even find a parallel anywhere else. Or maybe it's on a football team. And there are a lot of, there's a lot of suffering there too, a lot of physical suffering and injuries and even emotional. You know, one minute, if you're a quarterback, one minute you're the hero, the next minute you're the goat, right? Depending on whether you win or lose. In fact, I was going to talk about this today too. I'll just throw it in while we're at it. With our children's ministry, most of our young people, our junior high, high school kids, serve over there and help in the children's ministry. That's a great thing. But I would like to see them more in the adult service with us because I think they need to be being trained and prepared for adulthood by being a part of this congregation, the adult congregation. They joyfully, willingly serve over there, and Liz is very thankful for the help. But if we had more adults getting involved in the children's ministry, that would free up some of these kids to be a part of this service, which is something I would like to see happen more. So pray about that, getting involved. But my point being this, service, serving. How do you really get to know people in the church? How do you make friendships? How do you make relationships? There is no better way than serving together. And sometimes that means suffering together. They often go hand in hand. But I would encourage you. The people that have been here the longest are the ones who have been serving here forever. Now maybe they feel trapped. I don't know. I hope not. I don't want them to feel that way. But when you get involved, when you plug in, again, in order to truly know Christ and enter into a deep relationship, we must embrace the fellowship of His sufferings. Not that we go out looking for trouble. Man, I want to get close to Jesus. Bring some suffering on, baby. Come on. Where is it? Hurt me. Hit me. Not go out looking for it, but when it does come, we rejoice that we are in good company. We're in His company. If we really have Christ in our hearts, in our minds, our eyes fixed on Him, obviously not physically, but in the Spirit, how could we ever feel sorry for ourselves? Because look what He went through for us. The perfect, sinless Son of God. If we could keep that in focus... I think our pity parties would be held to a minimum. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed. And again, God's Word, we talk about this here all the time. God's Word always brings us back to the eternal, to the end game. When His glory is revealed, this is what it's all about. This is the goal, the end game, to see Him face to face. One day soon, the glory of Jesus Christ will be fully revealed to the whole world. Whether they're ready for it or not. As believers, we're supposed to keep our eyes on the prize. Because if our eyes are here and now on these things, when these things don't pan out, when they go away, like the stock market's been a little up and down lately, 
We remember the big crash back around 08 when people lost one-third, one-half, two-thirds of their retirement. Do you guys remember that? Boy, if that's where your focus is, this is when people start committing suicide and doing some pretty crazy things. How many of you have heard of a thing back from the previous century called the Great Depression? And you had all... It wasn't the poor people who were jumping out of 10-story buildings. It was the rich guys who just lost everything because all their treasures were in this world, in this life, here and now. When His glory is revealed... Now, we've had a partial revelation of His glory through the Word of God, by the Spirit of God, born again, the Spirit of God living in us. We've studied the Scriptures and we were able to, a very small degree, develop a mental picture of what eternity looks like. But it's very limited, isn't it? It's going to blow our minds. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Get it? So to whatever extent you've been able up to this point in your life to kind of sort of picture what heaven's going to be like, what eternity's going to be like, whatever we're able to conjure up in our minds falls way short of what it really is. That's good news. And let me say something else while I'm at it. The same thing is true for the other place. For anyone who thinks they've been able to somehow conjure up a mental image or some kind of feelings, thoughts or feelings about what hell might be like, you don't have a clue as to how bad it's going to be. We don't have a clue as to how awesome eternity in paradise with God is going to be. We also don't have a clue as to how horrible and tormenting and torturous hell is going to be. Does that seem to make the choice a little easier? I would certainly think so. I was So what we have is we have somewhat of an idea of heaven here, a little bit of an idea of hell here. It's going to be like that. Get it? Okay. And never the twain shall meet. When... That when His glory is revealed. Again, that's the end game. That's the goal. Why do we go through what we go through in this life? Because we want to be there when His glory is revealed. And we want to be on the right side of the equation. Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11. Therefore, God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is already a present reality, but to this world His glory has not yet been fully revealed. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, the first time He came in humiliation. He was born in a stable. He was placed in a manger. His parents were poor people from a little hick hillbilly town called Nazareth. He grew up as a carpenter, a laborer. He was rejected by the spiritual or religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, looked down on him. He came in humiliation. He died a criminal's death, the most horrible of all 
criminal deaths. He was mocked, cursed, spit upon. He came in humiliation. Next time, uh-uh, he's coming in his glory. He's coming in his glory. And all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. How many of you want to be there for that? And you want to be on the right side of the line. So that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Because you know you stood the test. You endured. You persevered. Those who willingly choose to suffer with and for Christ in this life. And we know that suffering looks different for everybody. It takes on many forms. And again, not that we go out looking for trouble, but we embrace it when it comes because we are entering into the fellowship of His sufferings. Those who willingly choose to suffer with and for Christ in this life, rejoicing in the process, not the Eeyore believer. Yeah, I'm suffering for Jesus. Remember Eeyore? Rejoicing in the process. And again, not saying it's easy, but by being in the Word, letting the Word of God encourage us, letting the Spirit of God work within us, takes daily relationship and communication with God, doesn't it? There's no way we can do this apart from a close, tight, personal, intimate relationship with God. Otherwise, we're going to default to our own devices. And we're going to get grumpy, grumbly, mad, angry, upset, and we're going to totally miss the whole point of what we're going through and why we're going through it. I've said it so many times, I think I said it last week, trials will make us bitter or better. What would you rather be, bitter or better? Better, obviously. There's a song, I hear it every once in a while, I play it on the uh, oldies uh, channel on Sirius XM. Oh no, pastor's going to hell. He listens to secular music. Well, I listen to the kind where they talk about holding your hand, not doing other things. Anyway, here's the song. The Grassroots, Let's Live for Today. When I think of all the worries people seem to find and how they're in a hurry to complicate their minds by chasing after money and dreams that can't come true, I'm glad that we are different. We've better things to do. Now, so far, so good. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Here's where the song goes south. May others plan their future. I'm busy loving you. One, two, three, four. Sha-la-la-la-la-la, live for today. How many of you recognize the song? And don't worry about tomorrow. Hey, sha-la-la-la, live for today. That's where the song goes south. Live for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Now, we... We need, we need to plan for our future, and how do we do that? By being in the Word of God, by being followers of Christ, by doing the things that Peter's encouraging us here in this passage. Those who live for today, seeking after happiness, fulfillment, and contentment in the things of this life and this world, will most likely shrink back from and avoid trials as much as possible. Now, some people do that with their kids, I love my kids. I've always been protective of my kids. Tried to do everything I could for them. 
But if we shelter them too much, they're not ready to face the world. Now, having said that, I never agreed with people. Say, well, I want to put them in a public school so they can be witnesses for Christ. Children are not ready for that, for the most part. Maybe some are. I believe there's a time to train, prepare, and equip. And then when they reach adulthood, hopefully we've done all the right things as best we could, but then they're still going to have to, to deal with their own challenges, their own faith. They're going to have to come to grips with their own faith in God. But if we shelter them too much, if we, if we don't... <laughs> I better not go here. We've talked about this. When we were kids, none of us wore helmets when we rode our bicycles. And then some of you would say, well, that's your problem. <laughs> but we've become so overprotective as a society that nobody learns how to deal with difficulty. I mean, it's not going to be long before people are living encased in some kind of a cocoon. This is why we have a generation on our college campuses that have to have safe spaces, Play-Doh, hot chocolate, and so on. They've been so sheltered that they haven't learned how to deal with any troubles, difficulties, or problems in their lives. They also don't know how to go out and live on their own. A lot of them are still living with their parents. Are you following me here? The same thing applies to you and I. If God just babied us from the time that we were born again and we were newborn babes in Christ, we would never build the strength and stamina, endurance that we need to live life in this world as followers of Christ. And so those who focus on seeking after living for today, sha-la-la-la-la-la, live for today, seeking happiness, fulfillment, contentment in the things of this life and this world, will most likely shrink back from and avoid trials as much as possible and then never really experiencing what Paul speaks of in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And once again, Peter says that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 2 Corinthians 4.16-18, and then we'll close. Therefore, we do not lose heart, Paul says, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And that's the key. The way to stand firm, to endure, to persevere. The outward man is perishing. And those of us here today that are older than others recognize that more and more every day, don't we? The outward man is perishing. Either just by the natural aging process or in the case of Paul and these other first century believers, they were being stoned, beaten, crucified. The outward man is perishing, but yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Daily walk with Christ. For our light affliction, now who, Paul, shipwrecked multiple times, stoned. One time it looks like he even died and God had to bring him back to life. And yet he, he calls these light afflictions. What does that make our afflictions? Fifty lashes with a wet noodle? Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, it seems like a long time to you, but for God, 70 years is nothing. We're but a vapor, but a moment. The grass withers, the flower fades. We're just like the grass. 
is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal. There it is again. I'm telling you, if you want to be successful in the Christian life, and by successful, I don't mean prosperous. I don't mean, you know, recognized. Successful, I mean following Christ from now until the day you see him face to face, remaining faithful to God, being a faithful witness. If that's what you want, then you have to keep your eyes on the eternal end game, working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. No matter how bad things may be going in your life, hey, listen, man, it's okay because I'm going to live forever with God. My sins have been forgiven. I'm washed in the blood of the Lamb. Do your worst. Verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, that's another big problem we have. We always want to look at what we see with our physical eyes instead of what we see in the Spirit. What we see in the Spirit is the truth of God's Word, the reality of who He is, what He has done, what He's doing now, and what He's going to do. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are what? But the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's stand. Father God, as always, we are thankful and grateful for this. these two verses, which when we look at the other scriptures that tie into them, there's so much there, so much for us to learn, so much for us to hear and listen to and apply to our own lives. Peter is preparing his readers for impending trials and tribulations. But not just for them, but for every believer, everyone who would desire to be a follower of Christ, Lord. Jesus told us, in the world you'll have tribulation, but be at peace. Take heart. Let not your heart be troubled. I have overcome the world. And so, Lord, we know that the only way we can grow, become stronger in our faith, that our faith can be proved genuine, is to embrace the trials, the tribulations, the persecutions, the difficulties that come our way in this life. Lord, we know that non-believers have trials and tribulations too. But we are blessed to know that ours have meaning and they have purpose. That you are using them to purify us, to strengthen us, to test us, so that when we've stood the test, we would receive that crown of life that you have prepared for us. Father, I pray for anyone here today that's been struggling in this area, confused about why they're going through what they're going through, frustrated, angry maybe, bitter. Help them, God, to just give it all over to you today, to rest in your arms, to know, to understand, to believe that you have their best interests at heart. And if they will but yield to the work of your Spirit in their lives, if you will embrace these trials joyfully, rejoicing, that you will come to their aid, you will rescue them, you've promised in your word that you would do that, and the end result will be positive, there will be gain, there will be benefit, and ultimately, the greatest gain is that gain of eternal life, living with you forever in paradise. We pray for anyone, Lord, who doesn't know in their heart of hearts today if they truly belong to you, if they're truly a child of God, they don't know if they've been born again, but they want to be. We ask that you draw them today by your Spirit that they might come and pray and receive Christ today. And Lord, whatever else is going on in people's lives, if it's a need for, for health issues, physical healing, uh, provision, 
of material resources which we all have to have in this life. Emotional, whatever it might be, Lord, that they would draw near to you. Your word says if we will draw near to you, you will draw near to us. Pray that they would come today and receive ministry of prayer through the laying on of hands. In Jesus' name, amen.